The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 151 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We've got another fantastic episode for you. But before we get into this week's conversation, I, of course, want to thank our reviewers. This week, we have new five-star reviews from, uh, these are their usernames on Apple Podcasts, uh, Sisu8, Olena Houston, and Bruce GK. And in parentheses for Bruce, uh, the parentheses GK is God's kid, which I love that. What a great name. God's kid. Ah, that's great. Uh, I also do want to thank uh, another listener, uh, and that is Eileen DeGruccio. Eileen is the uh, mother-in-law of my cousin, Monty, and uh, I guess listens to the show very regularly. So I wanted to give her a special shout out. Eileen, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, this week, what an incredible episode we've got for you. Rosalie Mastaler is just an incredible soul. This story, I was so engrossed in it, you'll be able to tell, and just blown away by their faith and, and the trials they've been through, and yet where they are now. And it really kind of uh, stuck with me all week. We, we did the meeting online. I've never met them, but incredible story you've got coming up. And this week in my Latter-day life, uh, it's about my attitude and my tooth. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today on the Latter-day Lives podcast, I've got an amazing saint who has such a fascinating story. I'm just dying to jump into it. Rosalie Mastaler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to share my story and to have a conversation with you about it. Oh, so, you know, when you reached out to me and shared some links, the second I read your your story, I just, I turned to my wife and I said, oh, this is going to be amazing. I could not wait to have you on. And we were supposed to record the week before last. I had some things to, uh, that, that came up, but go ahead and make everybody jealous by telling us why we couldn't record last week. So we were in Florida at Disney World last week um, for yes. a family vacation. Oh, that's so, so awesome. And, you know, I could spend the next 45 minutes just <laughs> talking about Disney World, uh, but I'm not going to do that because we lose all of our <laughs> listeners. So let's get to know you before we get into kind of what you're, you're known for and uh, your family. Let's get to know you a little bit, Rosalie. Tell us where you're from. Um, born and raised in Southern California. I basically spent my whole life there until we moved to Arizona last year, and now we're in Texas. So whereabouts in Southern California? Everyone thinks Southern California is like beaches and palm trees. We were in the desert of Southern California, <laughs> um, which was fine because we were still close to the beaches and close to Disneyland and the mountains. Sure. But um, we were in um, the high desert in San Bernardino County. I love high desert area. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful out there, yeah. So uh, growing up, were you raised in the church? I was not. Um, my dad was 
Um, he was born into the church. My mom was not, she converted and it's kind of a little bit of a messy story there, but, um, a friend from school invited my brother to scouts, which of course sent the missionaries our way and they taught (laughs) us the lessons. And I was baptized just a little bit before I became a young woman at the age of 12. And my family was sealed in the temple a little bit after that. And, that was when my time at the church started. All right. So you were you were old enough to remember kind of a little bit of pre-Latter-day Saint life followed yes. by post-Latter-day Saint life. Yeah. When you were 11, were you like, what is this? This is a crazy transition or did it kind of come naturally? No, it was crazy. Um, I think I remember just being in the church building specifically playing volleyball at an activity days event and they were calling each other brother and sister. I'm like, why do you guys do that? (laughs) And so that was the first weird thing. And then being at church for three hours, that was a little odd too. And not being able to go to the mall or anything on Sundays because I I love to shop and I love to go to the mall. And so that was very different for me being like a preteen. Yeah. So there were some changes for sure. All right, so then uh, we get into your high school years. Um, what were you? What were you into? What was your thing when you were in high school? My thing has actually always been music. I love choir. I was in band, um, but I really got into singing in high school and drama. And I also did cheerleading for three years as well. Mm. And at high school too is actually when I met my now husband. So we're high school sweethearts. Okay, that is very very rare. Mm-hmm. How did how did you meet your husband? Um, seminary, and we had early morning seminary, um, so oh, yeah. we would wake up at like four forty five in the morning. And he's a year ahead of me, but I just kind of met him there, and um, you know, saw him around school and seminary and stuff. And so we met, and kind of took a while to hit it off a little bit, but we became really good friends, and then started dating. That is so rare, and I love love hearing that. So. So you get done with high school. What came next? Um, after high school, I actually went to New York to be a nanny. And I spent a year there. And then after that, I came home. And that was actually right around the time. Um, my husband's name is Michael. It was right around the time Michael came home from his mission. And we actually rekindled, totally not expecting to rekindle. I didn't wait for him. Actually, somebody else waited for him. And <laughs> that obviously didn't work out. But you and, won. That's yeah. what matters. You are the winner. <laughs> so, um, but then I had already committed to wanting to go to Russia to teach English. So we actually... Um, started dating again and we made the decision like let's let's get married but I want to go to Russia and if things still stay the same and we make it through this time apart of being basically half a world apart then I know we're solid and we're good to go and I came home from Russia and within 24 hours he officially proposed at Disneyland by the way and um, he actually held up a sign on Splash Mountain that said marry me and so no come on yeah. Wow. <laughs> so when we got off the ride, I looked at the picture and I saw the sign and I was like, what in the world? And yeah, that's how it happened. And we were Best proposal like, ever. <laughs> you guys, that talk about just meant to be. That is awesome. Thank you. 
So you guys ended up getting married. First of all, um, I mean, that's a big journey. You know, you went from Southern California to New York, out to Russia. Mm -hmm. Uh, How was your experience with Russia? And were you able to participate in church in Russia? Yes. um, Actually, we got there on a Saturday and so jet lagged, super jet lagged. But the next day was Sunday. And I was one of the only ones who went out there not knowing anybody, which was um, very nerve wracking to say the least, because everybody kind of came with a companion and, you know, feeling far from home and far from Michael and my family. And I was like, I I need to go to church. I need to feel the sense of belonging and home and going to church in Russia is quite a journey um, literally because we have to get on a bus and then get to the subway and then get on another bus and then walk. And we're, I was there in January in one of the coldest winters in like 70 years. And, um, so it's freezing, but I went to church on that first Sunday and I always have like a hymn or a theme song for my life. Pretty much always like, oh, this is my song for me right now. And the mm-hmm. song for me at that moment was The Lord is My Light. And I listened to it on the plane on the way there. And I sat down for sacrament and the opening hymn was The Lord is My Light. And awesome. I, just knew I was in the right place and that I would be guided while I was there. And there was no greater comfort than hearing that hymn and hearing the words that the Lord will guide me and that he will always be my light. And we went to church every Sunday there, even though, like I said, it was a journey, but we went every Sunday. Yeah, that's just awesome. Uh, so you guys end up getting married and you you were in Southern California still then once you got married? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And then when did you start having kids? We had kids about five years after we were married. So you end up having a son, and uh, and then there's a, a major, major incident, major accident in in your life. Why don't you kind of tell us uh, tell us that story? So um, Michael was a police officer at the time, and he was promoted to be a canine handler um, about a year before the accident happened. So we had Django, the canine, living with us for an entire year. And very strict rules. Um, he wasn't a family dog. The kids weren't allowed to be around him. Um, they never pet him. He was either locked away or he was making a short trek from his kennel to my husband's police unit, which was in the garage, and then he would take him to work. Um, How old were the kids at this time? So Hunter was four and Cade was 18 months. Gotcha. So um, one day I left to run an errand and Michael had let Django out of his cage. And he was, it was kind of bad timing for everything because he was gone um, for the whole weekend doing a boot camp. And the first weekend of these boot camps that he helped run were extremely exhausting. I mean, you're working with troubled teens for about 72 hours straight, getting little to no sleep. And I mean, it's boot camp in every sense. And so he came home, but I had to run this quick errand and I left Hunter with him. And so he was exhausted. He let Django out of his cage because he hadn't been out for the whole weekend because I can't let him out. And he went upstairs to take a shower and Hunter didn't realize that I had left. And he went into the backyard looking for me, which is very odd because I don't go in the backyard. It wasn't really a big backyard. We didn't spend time out there. 
but he was looking for me and he went out in the backyard. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but um, Django attacked him. This is, I mean, this is a true canine unit police dog. Yes. Terrifying. I mean, Rosalie, this is a dog who is trained mm-hmm. for the purpose of attacking. Yeah. And how did, uh, how did, how did you or Michael, how did the attack get stopped and, and what happened then? So it's a little bit complicated, but because Michael basically wasn't there and I wasn't there, um, the neighbors heard Hunter's screams. And at first mm. they thought it was just a child playing because, you know, that's common. And so minutes passed and they kept hearing him screaming. And finally they went and checked and looked over our fence and saw Django attacking Hunter. They were an older couple and they knew that Django was a police dog. So they didn't, um, you know, jump the fence and get in there right away. They basically just called 911 and tried yelling at the dog, trying everything they could. Then they went outside and started yelling. This whole time Hunter is in Django's jaws. And the neighbor down the street had kids playing and his kids went and got him. He came and he broke down our fence. And right around the same time, Michael got out and heard the commotion because people were banging on our door. And... Um, he ran into our backyard and basically with everything he had, like ripped Django's jaws off of Hunter's leg. Oh, Rosalie, this is, this is so terrifying. I mean, just terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, You end up then coming home. Did you get a phone call first or did you? I get the phone call saying that Hunter has been bit and literally in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's, he's been bit. I'm sure it was something small. Like there's no way it's something absolutely terrible. He probably just needs stitches. This is like 100% what's going through my mind. And he didn't tell me anything more. He said, um, Django's been bit, but then he's like, I got to go because the ambulance was arriving and they were trying to get him, you know, not going into shock and everything. So he calls me back and, um, he, I said, okay, where do I need to go? Like what hospital are, are we going home and picking him up? Like what's going on? And then I hear him talking in the background and I hear him say, I hear him say, where are you landing the bird? And I, that's when I knew like you're bringing in a helicopter. Like they only bring in helicopters when someone's life is in danger. So I knew 100% at that point, like this is much more than stitches. And then he told me um, to go to the airport because that's where they were taking him to the airport where the helicopter was. And Um, Something that's very important was, you know, I heard that and I was in shock, especially because I'm trying to take in everything. And I was so confused as to why Hunter wasn't like crying or screaming in the background. Like if it's this bad, like why don't I hear my son? And Michael says to me, Rosalie, I don't know. I gave him a blessing and he's doing okay right now. He's stable. So, um, that gave brought me some comfort, but still like my mama heart was just broken and I was already devastated. Um, but still I felt like it's a dog bite. His life might be in danger right now, right now, but it's going to be okay. Like this is going to be 100%. Okay. He's going to be fine. He's going to be healed. I have faith. God can do anything and he's going to heal my son. And I get on, I, rush to the airport literally at the same time they arrive and I get on the helicopter and we make our way to the hospital. Oh, what's that drive like driving to the airport? 
Um, I was with my brother-in-law because he ran the errand with me. So he was the one driving. And I remember like yelling at him, like, just go, just go. I don't care about traffic laws. Like, just go. And we were taking a lot of side streets. So we would like stop as little as we could, like look both ways and be careful and just go. But at one point, I remember like punching the door because I was just so upset. Once I found out that he was getting on the helicopter, I was just like, okay, like something is very wrong right now. And I just remember like banging my fist, but at the same time, knowing that I had to stay cool and calm because I was about to get to my son and I needed him. I needed to be present for him. And incredible, you know, the, the presence of mind that your husband had to give him a blessing yes. in the moment. What a beautiful testimony that is. Um, so, so this is your first time now seeing Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you at all prepared for what you saw? So, oddly enough, it it didn't look. I remember seeing like his lip looked busted, and there was dirt under his fingernails, and there was like dirt on his face, and the, all the damage was done to his leg. Besides, like just being a little bit kind of cut up on his face, which I was so confused about, and I go. I, and I questioned Michael and I go, I go, why, why does his face look like this? And, um, he just, the look on Michael's face at that point was, I mean, all the weight in the entire world was on his shoulders because he felt 100% that it was his fault. And, um, and he just kind of looks down and he goes, "It, it happened during the scuffle, which made sense. I had to put all the pieces together. Right. Later, almost days and weeks later, because I didn't really care about the details. I just wanted in the moment for my son to be okay. I didn't want to talk about it with Michael because it was so traumatic and so raw. And, um, and actually right when I got to the airport, um, Michael kind of intervened real quick before I even got to Hunter and he met me at the truck. Mm. And, um, my husband is so strong. Like he, I can count on one hand how many times I've seen him cry and we've known each other since teenagers. Right. So, yeah. um, the look on his face was like a look that I've never, ever seen before in yeah. our entire lives. And, and he just broke down and said, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. Oh. And I just will always remember like cradling his face in my hands and saying, I will never blame you for this because this could happen to anybody, anybody. Like, I mean, there's times when I'm cooking and I leave a knife on the counter and I always think like, Oh my gosh, if my kid were to grab that and something were to happen to him, like, I would feel like it's my fault. Like there's so many things in life as parents that we can do. Right. Possibly put our children in harm, but without any intent. And there's so much guilt and so much blame that I knew that I can never, ever add to it. And I've, I mean, I've just never taken that back because he does it for himself still to this day. How was Hunter during the uh, during the helicopter trip? Was he so, talking? No. As soon as the um, paramedics got to him, um, they, they gave him morphine pretty quick. And so he was almost sedated when I got to him. And that was one of the first things that they told me too. Like he was coherent. Like he knew I was there, but he wasn't all there, which made it so much easier for me. Cause it wasn't like I got there and he was screaming, you know? So right. 
that made it so much easier. Yeah. So you guys get to the the hospital. What came next? They rushed him in and um, started to prepare him for surgery. And um, they it took some time. And the the biggest thing was they called me over to sign forms for consent. And all I could think in my mind was like, I don't care what you need to do. Get him into surgery, fix his bones, fix his leg. Let's just get this done because we are going to leave this hospital and he's going to be okay. He's going to like, that was it. Like that, there was no going back on how I was feeling about that. And I think a big part of that was I, I believed so strongly and I still do in miracles. Yeah. And I just felt like this miracle is going to happen for us. It's going to happen for us. Um, we had actually just a few years before that lost a baby. And oh. I kind of felt like, okay, Heavenly Father, like I've already been through something very big. So, and I remember specifically after we lost that baby, I prayed and I begged Heavenly Father and I said, please don't let me go through something this difficult again. And mm. I, the answer to that prayer was, have faith. And I was like, no, <laughs> I know what that means. Like, the, yeah. I, no, I don't want to have faith. <laughs> I will continue to have faith, but I, I just want to know from you, like, that I will never experience such a deep heartache again. Like, and that's not how life works. I know that, and I knew that. But you know, in those moments when we're begging and when we're pleading, we just want we want an answer, and I did get an answer. And when Hunter went through what he went through, I went back to that, and I relied on that, and. Mm. And it helped me to remember that moment and that very sacred moment with my Heavenly Father. When was the first time uh, that you realized that uh, that this was not all going to be, hey, we're just going to do a few stitches and take him home? So it was when I was signing those consent forms. Um, they started kind of going through the list of everything they were going to do. I don't remember almost any word except one. So they went through the list and finally at the very end, they said, um, and if it comes down to it, we are going to amputate. Mm. And that's when I, they, they literally had to catch me because I was like, no, no, like this is, I know what that word means. And I know what that means. Like his life will change forever. Yeah. And that's when it kind of all came crashing down. Um, he went into surgery. They fixed it as much as they could. Um, but what happens with pediatric arteries and veins is there's an uh, elasticity to them. So if they're damaged, they close up really fast so they don't bleed out, mm. which is a fail safe for them. And so we're so grateful that he didn't, you know, bleed to death, basically. Right. Yeah. But because of, of that, the blood flow never returned to his foot. Mm. Um, so basically they did the first surgery and they came out and they told us we did everything we could. We're going to wait and see if the blood flow returns. And I still oh. had hope. I still was like, okay, like we still have a chance for a miracle here. This can still happen. Um, so basically for every hour on the dot from the time he got out of his surgery Till the amputation, which was about two and a half, three days, they checked the pulse. And I was with him 
pretty much 23 hours a day, 23 to 24, that one hour I would either go eat or like take a breath or go take a shower. But besides that, I was with him 24 seven. And on the hour, every hour I would just, I would just listen and I would pray for, to hear a pulse because I still believed, I still believe that his leg can be saved. Um, and then wow. it started turning black and blue. And by the third day, it was like, okay, it, this isn't going to happen. This isn't meant. He's not meant to keep his leg. And on the day of his amputation, I that was, I really started questioning, like, why wasn't my faith enough? Why, mm. if everybody's praying, if I'm praying, like, if literally thousands of people were praying, because as soon as it happened, like, it blew up like wildflower wildfire like everybody started praying they put his name in temples and i just thought like if so many people are praying like why can't this happen for him right and michael came in that morning and i just was heartbroken and i just asked him like why like why and my husband is just so good and faithful and he goes this is heavenly father's way of taking care of him like, what do you mean? Like, what? And I mean, Hunter could have died. He could yeah. have easily been killed by that dog. And we started thinking about everything. He could have been bit um, on the arm. And we both decided we would have rather him lose his leg than his arm because of use of prosthetics. Sure. He could have been bit on the middle of his body and damaged organs and died. He could have been bit on his neck. He could have been bit mm. higher up on the leg, which means he would have lost a knee, which is huge for amputees. You ask a below knee amputee and an above knee amputee, and it's a huge difference wow. um, in their life and quality of life. And not that they have a lower quality of life, but it's very different. But yeah, it's a um, different trial. Sure. Yes. And we just went through all those things mm. and – that morning and he was his leg was amputated later that day and i feel like after that conversation with michael like i just never looked back how was michael in dealing with all this so during the day he was with me most of the time at the hospital and i think he had we had such different experiences because not only did he have the guilt and everything but that was also his career a career that he loved and admired yeah, and took sure much pride in so he felt like he failed his son he failed me and he failed as a police officer but he's so um he's not a vulnerable person whatsoever so he didn't let on at all he handled it so well um but we were apart at night because only one person could stay with hunter at night Mm. and he said that at night it was just horrifying because he was alone with his thoughts. It wasn't like, you know, Hunter was able to keep me busy during the night, which was exhausting. But at the same time, I didn't yeah. have downtime to be with my thoughts. And Michael did. And I know that was very hard for him. And he actually didn't even express that to me until, I don't know, maybe a good year later. Wow. Oh, yeah. this is so much. Uh, how much did Hunter understand and appreciate what was happening? I feel like he didn't understand any of it. He was so young. He was only yeah, like four. four and a half. And yeah. I can't imagine being that little and all of a sudden waking up from a surgery and your limb being gone. Like, oh. I mean, think of that as an adult where it, I just, so it was, um, and that's why um, 
we struggled so much after with the recovery because he couldn't comprehend it. He literally couldn't wrap his mind around it. He would so many times ask me like, mom, can we just go back to the hospital and get my leg? Can, is it in the backyard? Can we go to the oh, backyard? Oh, it, Rosalie, I'm sorry. That is so heartbreaking. It, it was. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So they, they do the amputation. It's obviously it's successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you bring him home. Clearly, you know, I, I mean, just to tie up loose ends, clearly the dog is not going to be at the house anymore. Right. Um, what did this all mean for Michael and his, you know, career wise were decisions made then, or was that kind of on the back burner while you were, they had to do an investigation as they do with everything. So that was hard because, um, to see him investigated for something that was already, already hard. Yeah. 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 Um, but he knew he accepted it and he knew that was protocol. His dad was a police officer and worked in internal affairs and did investigations. So he just knew and he, he took it like a champ. Like it wasn't like he was this positive and happy go lucky person through it, but like he really did take it like a champ because that's just who he is. And yeah. um, not that it wasn't hard by any sure. I can imagine. I mean, yeah, I can only barely imagine. So you, you bring Hunter home and now suddenly, you know, Rosalie, you've never done this before. You don't know how to be a mother of a, a child with an amputation. And you probably knew almost nothing about nothing. how to do all this. Zero. So, so talk about the first like a uh, couple of months of this. And by the way, can we just note you had a baby at home too through all this? <laughs> right. I mean, Rosalie, yeah. this is like, this is so heartbreaking trying to picture you sweet people going through all this. Yeah. So we had, like, I have um, such a great best friend that lived in town with me that helped me so much with my toddler at the time. She actually is the one that I called her on the way to the airport. And she was the only one that I called actually. And I said, Hunter's been bit by Django, of course, through my sobbing tears. And I said, I need you to take Kate. And with, you know, without any, any hesitation, she said, okay. And she met up with my brother-in-law, got Cade and Cade. I didn't see Cade at at that moment in time. Like I couldn't be a parent to two kids. Sure. Of course. She took over. And as you know, you hear so many of these stories when you're going through these devastations and people take over for you and are the parent for that children. And that's what she did. But um, she did it multiple times too, because even after the accident, we were invited out to Florida to meet the dolphin who doesn't have the tail so that Hunter could like have this little therapeutic session with the dolphin. It was amazing. And she took, he turned two that weekend and she took him because, you know, we wanted to focus on Hunter and we've gone to camps with Hunter. And um, so yeah, his little brothers are just, they're special little beings because they have to, you know, deal with all that. But, um, so the months after the accident, they were just so trying, um, because it was trying to get Hunter to like mentally accept everything. Um, six weeks after an amputation is when you get your prosthetic, your prosthetic leg. Um, and when you physically should be able to walk as long as everything's going. Okay. Average on average though, it's about six weeks. 
And that's, wow, that's quicker than I would have guessed. Right. So in my yeah. mind, even at the hospital, I'm like six weeks, that's right around. Cause it was in February, man, he's going to go Easter egg hunting. He's going to put on that leg and he's going to, it's going to be like nothing ever happened. Mm. And I was so positive. I was like, okay, this sucks. He lost his leg. He's going to get a prosthetic leg. We're moving forward. We're doing this, like being the cheerleader. <laughs> and then it just blew up because he didn't accept it. And it took uh, eight months for him to take his first step. Eight yeah. months. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rosalie, this is just so heartbreaking. And yet, you know, I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're, you know, four-year-olds, it's been a little while since I've had a four-year-old at home, but four-year-olds are not, it's not like, hey, they're easy unless mm-hmm. you're dealing with a challenge. Four-year-olds are remarkably difficult in <laughs> the best of circumstances. <laughs> and this poor little guy is dealing with so much. So mm-hmm. talk about that process of of getting to the first step. It was a lot of physical therapy, um, three times a week for about 12 weeks. He started kindergarten. So I think it was him like being away from home and trying to gain some independence and seeing other kids and, you know, realizing like I could do what they're doing, but I need to take my first step first. And, um, so there was a lot that happened in that eight months and, At the same time, so these eight months, because, and I almost like hate to say this because the story gets almost crazier. Doesn't almost, it does get crazier. Um, only a few months after Hunter's amputation, Michael's youngest brother is diagnosed with cancer, who is oh. Hunter's all time best friend. All time best friend. He loved his uncle so much. And he's the youngest brother too. And he was mm. like, I, he was one of those people who was a big kid, right? We all know this. Yeah, people. sure. And so, you know, he met Hunter when he came off his mission when he was two, and it was like automatic bond. And they were just these two little peas in a pod. And um, five months later, actually, just right after Hunter took his first step, he passed away. And um, Hunter was actually able to walk in his funeral as we were, you know, walking behind the casket. But that grief was so hard on him because here he lost his leg he lost his best friend and then not too much longer after that we find out that he lost part of his hearing and while he was in the hospital because of the medicine they gave him so we are not at all like grief is not foreign to us whatsoever you here you go through you know you're trying to get this sweet kid to accept it, to process it, to take a step. You're dealing with, you know, your husband figuring out what's going on with his entire career and identity. Uh You're dealing now with hearing loss, with cancer and family. By the end of that, whatever, let's say eight months, nine months, whatever, Uh where was your faith? Where was your faith and your testimony and your relationship with, with Heavenly Father at that time? I would say... I mean, the biggest time that it wavered, which I felt like was only such a small moment, was in the hospital right before the amputation. Um, But after that, I mean, there was a few other small moments. Like there was one specific time when we were trying so hard to get Hunter to walk. And I felt like 
and this isn't necessarily my faith, but I would say more faith in Heavenly Father's plan for us because I felt like, Heavenly Father, why why did you trust me to be his mother? Because mm. I almost am done. Like I, I can't, I, I don't know how much more I can handle because right, I just didn't feel like I was able to help him because I felt like he wasn't getting better. And, um, but then the next morning, you know, nothing's better than a good night's sleep. And the next morning (laughs) and Hunter actually that morning was like, Hey, look, and this was, there was a lot of ups and downs where he like learned how to walk and he was walking, but then he had struggles again and he wasn't walking. So this was one of those times when he kind of wasn't walking well, but it literally, we woke up and he's like, mom, look how well I can walk. And he wow. just started walking and I was like, what in the world? Like, <laughs> okay, you heard my prayers. You knew I was about to hit my brain. Everything's okay. It's okay right now. Even if it's okay for a day, I will take it. And it's okay. <laughs> I love it. I find I find that during times of intense trials, you know, none of us are, uh, and certainly my my trials have been very different from yours. Mm-hmm. But that I tend to have one day where I'm like, "What is this?" and God, are you really there? Mm-hmm. But then also times where I'm closer to Him because of the trial. Yes, there are, there are times where I have been able to understand my relationship with God in ways I never would have without the going through the trial. Did you find similar experiences with that? Definitely. Um, And I mean, I definitely, I I just have to say that I'm so grateful for trials because of the strength I've been able to gain through them and to be able to just know my heavenly father on a different level because Mm. I never would have been able to if it wasn't for those and and I almost feel a little bit guilty saying that because I'm not grateful that Hunter lost his leg or no, that of course no but that. I totally understand what you're yeah. saying but I'm but if I wasn't grateful I would be bitter yeah. and I've made a decision to never be bitter and I could have moments of bitterness but I don't ever ever want to live a bitter life because that's not why we are here. We're not here to be bitter. We are here to find happiness. This put you all on a very different journey with, with Hunter to inspire and to be inspired. Talk about where this, uh, where this experience took your family. Well, I mean, we never (laughs) definitely never sought out a position to inspire or to have a platform by any means. And, um, I feel like it just kind of started to happen. And just a, a specific example, I had a friend who had a stroke and it was, I think, kind of a major stroke. I'm not very versed on those, but um, she had to learn how to walk again. And she told me that all she could think of was Hunter. And it's, <laughs> she just thought, if Hunter can do it, I can do it. And I'm just like, yes, yes. Like, I don't. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever feel 100% comfortable being in the position that we are because we don't ever want to look like fame mongers or like, not at all. We're, you know, we're doing this, but at the same time, I always just 
fall back on, if I can help just one person, or if I can make one person to not feel alone, I want to keep going. And that is my motivation and my encouragement. So let's talk about some of those experiences that you've, you've had. How, how old is Hunter now? He's 10. Yeah. So this was six years ago. Talk about some of the things you've learned and some of the cool opportunities that you've had over the past, uh, for the past Uh, six years since this happened. That's, oh man, I feel like that's such a loaded question because I have learned so much just about myself and about life and about being a mother and a wife. Um, I would say one of the biggest turning points for me is when we had the opportunity to go to New York to be, um, to participate in a summit and it's called no barriers. And their motto is what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. And Mm. being there and it's for people of all abilities. So you see so many walks of life and the founder of it, actually the co-founder is um, Eric Weinmayer, who he's the first blind man to summit Mount Everest, which is mind blowing, right? Like absolutely mind blowing. And he took it upon himself to want to inspire others. And um, so to see him and he just brings all these people together to inspire and to motivate. And that was when I felt like, okay, you know, I don't ever want to feel sorry for us. I don't ever want to feel sorry for Hunter. There's all these people that these bad things happen to them or they were born a certain way, but they're not letting it stop them. And they are living these fulfilling lives that are almost more fulfilled because they went down a path that they never would have expected. And that's how I want to live. And, and I feel almost like I'm piggybacking off of them because even though I am his mom and I was there and I witnessed the trauma, like I'm not the amputee. I'm not the one with the disability. I'm not the one that's had these challenges. I have had challenges, but not like them. Right. Right. Look to them. And I just feel so inspired and so filled with life and with this hope of knowing that I can do it. I can do this life and I can be fulfilled and live a happy and joyful life. Before we get to how Hunter is doing now, I want to talk uh, a little bit more about just Michael and the rest of his journey over the past six years. Uh, Talk us through, talk us through Michael for, uh, for what's happened since. So, um, Michael, he lost the dog, obviously, and that was that was difficult for him to lose that position. Um, and he he was disciplined, um, and he did miss out on a promotion also because yeah. of what had happened, which definitely added insult to injury. But yeah, he just moved forward, and I mean, it was tough, but he moved forward. Awesome. Um, not too long after that, he got a knee surgery. He's had knee issues pretty much his whole career and being in a physical career. And he was on the SWAT team as well. So there was even more physicalness to it. Um, his knee was almost beyond repair. And the surgeon told him, you either need to retire or find something that's not as physical. Mm. So, um, after a lot of prayer and pondering, he decided to, um, take the medical retirement, went to flight school and um, he is now a pilot. And oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> he, which moved us to Arizona 
And then now we're here in Texas, he's managing a flight school, building his hours so that he can be um, a commercial, go to the commercial airlines. And, and through all this, you said, hey, you know, based on the last few years, you should probably throw another baby in the mix. That sounds <laughs> great. I think it'd be great to just add one more oh to all of this, which I just love. Your family is so beautiful. Thank you. Let's talk. Let's just talk really quickly about the baby. Okay. So, um, well, it's interesting because right after the accident, I never wanted just two kids ever. But after the accident, I felt like, how am I going to handle any more? And any special need parent that hears this. Will realize will will totally like nod up and down when they say this. When you have Absolutely. a kid, yeah. they're worth more than one kid because mm-hmm. of everything you have to do for them. So I was like, okay, I basically have three kids now. I'm not going to have another kid. But then, like as more time passed and we healed and we recovered and like my heart opened up to it again, um, I I just felt like, oh hey, my I will never feel complete until we have one more. And so we had one more. And he's the biggest terror out of all of them. <laughs> and I always feel like, oh my gosh. Like, but um, he is such a joy. Um, he is my baby. And man, I, he, he is a terror though. Total terror. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about Hunter now. Let's okay. talk about Hunter today. 10-year-old kid. What, uh, tell us about Hunter. Yeah. He, um, so one of the things he's doing right now that I feel like you know, listeners will hopefully go and check these out because it will give you an idea of exactly how he's doing. We're making these funny videos of him showing what life is like as an amputee, which says so much because he's now so comfortable with it that he wants to show people like, Hey, you want to see how I get around the house? I hop, I crawl, or my mom lets me ride a skateboard. Like just things <laughs> like that. Um, or look, I could walk on Legos and it's not going to hurt because <laughs> I have a big foot. So we started doing these these little videos and he's such a trooper because I'm like, come on, like, let's do this. But um, he's doing great. He's doing sports. He loves to golf. He's a great swimmer. Um, he swam against able-bodied swimmers back in Arizona and his coach actually said, you know, he's not going to be the fastest one out there. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, I sure. He was like, no big deal. His first race, he got first place. No I way. Cried. I was like, oh, oh I bet. I just like, couldn't believe it. Like he, like, I'm just cheering him on and I look and he's ahead and he hits the side and I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, so, um, and he even made it to the championships and yeah. And so physically he's doing great mentally. He's doing well. We have our bad days every now and then as everyone does, but I sure. feel like bad days for him almost seem a little bit more bad because of all the you know, everything that comes with it. But, um, right, right. Of course. Yeah. Well, we're in such a good place that we can make funny videos and laugh. That's about awesome. It. Awesome. And so you, world that this is some, you know, this is what life is like, and this is normal. I love it. And you have taken all these experiences. You have a, a blog, you have a website. Mm. Uh, let's point people towards your website if they want to learn more. Uh, it's Rosalie Mastaler. Do you want to spell that for people? Yes. R-O-S-A-L-I-E-M-A-S-T-A-L-E-R. 
And I have the link to on my Instagram page, which is Mass Taylor Party of Five. Um, <laughs> so we post a lot of our family stuff on there, and the website is fairly new, but um, but my Instagram I'm pretty active on. And then you took the opportunity to take this and uh, write all of these experiences into a book uh, that you are looking to uh, publish and put out there. How hard was it to relive all this uh, through writing? Or was it hard at all? Or was it therapeutic? I would definitely say it was more therapeutic and not so therapeutic where after I got done writing, it was like, ah, it wasn't like that. It was just kind of, I was able to make more sense of it. And be able to really, really dive into my thoughts and my feelings and my faith and my testimony and put it to words. And I've always loved to write, but I've never pictured myself as a writer. And But all these things that happened, it just made sense to, to put it in a story form. And I just can't wait till... I have something physical in my hand and someone asks me or someone's like, Hey, this person's having a hard time. Like, how did you get through it? I could just hand it to him and it's a product. And it's me telling him like, I made it through. You can too. And this is how I did it. We for sure have listeners who uh, are going through trauma right now. Having being somewhat on the other side of it now and being able to look back, if you just had a couple of words of advice for those people, what would you say? I would tell them to take it a day at a time. And sometimes it might even be an hour at a time. I mean, that's how I had to do it in the hospital when they were checking him every single hour. And and then to be patient with yourself and with your feelings and with God, because we're not going to get all the answers when we want them. And we, you know, we may not get the outcome that we want either but we still have to trust. And if we trust, I feel like everything can fall into place because we can gain so much peace from that. Mm, What a beautiful, beautiful message. All right, let's get to the final question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, uh, Rosalie, what does being a member of the church mean to you? I would say it's being able to have the knowledge and the peace of, of just my entire testimony. I, I wouldn't have the testimony I have if it wasn't for the church. And to have the relationship with I ha- with that I have with Heavenly Father, because I feel like I have so much knowledge about Him through Scripture and through just through everything. I feel like out of all the questions you ask, that's almost the hardest question because it means so much to me hmm. to, to have the gospel in my life, especially being a convert and knowing that, you know, there was a chance that I didn't have this in my life, but I do. And hmm. I know that it's that I am who I am today and I'm able to find the joy that I have found because of the gospel. She is the mother of some amazing, amazing children uh, with some unique and special challenges. Uh, She is also a wife and now an author and a blogger, and she and her family are making the world that much better of a place with, uh, with their story and their experiences. 
Uh, Rosalie Mastaylor, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and an honor. And my special thanks to Rosalie and to Michael and Hunter, their whole family. What an awesome example they all are. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, uh, I had something that this is going to sound so petty and probably because it is. I was having a great day and working out and just feeling really great. And right in the middle of it all, I felt something kind of funny in my mouth. And uh, that's when I realized I had broken a tooth. And I don't know why, but I have this thing about teeth breaking that's so upsetting to me. I have nightmares sometimes that I've broken a tooth. And I was born with really, really soft teeth, uh, something my sister and I have laughed about. We we both kind of have this. And dentists have told me, hey, that's just genetically what I was born with. So I've broken some teeth in the past. And oh, it is upsetting. I hate it so much. And this was even worse because here I was going into Labor Day weekend. I wasn't going to be able to get in to see a dentist until at least Tuesday. And uh, the whole thing just felt like such a nightmare. It was so upsetting. And I stopped working out and started storming around. And I was just angry and in the worst mood. And for a few minutes, I was almost inconsolable. And really more angry than anything. And I went upstairs to my bedroom and uh, went into my bathroom and looked in the mirror. And that's when I saw it, the tooth that broke. Now we go back to 1991. I was in the MTC and I had a tooth break in the MTC and had to go to uh, an emergency dentist and went in and he put on an implant. I think it's an implant, a fake tooth, whatever it is. Uh, crown, I, I don't know the right terminology, but basically a fake tooth. And he put it on, and I remember it was the most painful procedure. Oh, it was horrible. And then the fake tooth looked terrible. It looked horrible. It sat down kind of on the, the tooth that had, had been left there. It sat down kind of low, and there was a kind of a blackish gray line across the top. And the tooth itself was discolored. So it's kind of yellow and it sits pretty far back in my mouth. But anytime I'm really smiling wide in a photograph, I can see that fake tooth and I hate it. I've hated it for almost 30 years now. But, you know, I'm certainly not going to spend the money to go replace something that's working perfectly fine. But as I looked in the mirror uh, with this incident, I saw that it was that fake tooth that broke. And all of a sudden, I was overjoyed. I was so thrilled because I've hated that fake tooth for so darn long. And here was my chance to go actually get it replaced and to get something that I'm not going to notice all the time. And suddenly, what minutes before was the worst, worst thing on earth suddenly became a huge blessing to me. And I was thrilled and I could not wait. Now I'm excited. I'm excited to go to the dentist. Not excited for the bill that's going to be there, but I certainly am excited that I'm going to get a much, hopefully a much, much better looking uh, tooth replaced there. And what had changed in that time? Well, yes, there definitely was a slight change of circumstance. But even if it hadn't been that tooth, the technology we have in in today's age is just incredible. 
It's amazing. I mean, maybe if this had been, you know, 100 years ago, this would have been a big problem. But right now, what am I so upset about? And I was willing to let it completely ruin my day. Attitude is everything. And it's a lot easier on small trials like this than big trials. We've talked a lot today with Rosalie about trials. And obviously, there are big trials that are going to be a little bit more difficult. But I was so impressed with Rosalie's attitude and Hunter and Michael, their whole family. You know, attitude is everything. And especially when we know that we can turn to God, that he has this, that he's aware, he knows what's going on. And that even in simple little things, like a broken tooth, he is there for us to console us and and to just be there. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful for that blessing. I am grateful for my trials. It's harder to think about that in the moment, but afterward, the things that we learn from them and the, the way that it makes us be, I am just grateful. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We really, truly appreciate it. Uh, if you enjoy the show and you could think to share it with someone who might enjoy these conversations, we would uh, that would just mean the world to us. And I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.